This podcast is produced by The Brand is Female. Say hello, my name is Shayla Stonechild, and welcome to the Matriarch Movement Podcast. I'm speaking to you from the unceded traditional territory of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh people. Every week on the show, I share stories of Indigenous women from Turtle Island and beyond to challenge the mainstream narrative around Indigenous identity and offer up a new category of role models so that the next generations may thrive. We'll put a spotlight on issues facing Indigenous women and explore how we can reclaim our voice, our body, and our spirit, and our power that have been silenced and stolen throughout history and humanity. If you like this podcast, don't forget to subscribe on the platform of your choice. Now, let's get to this week's conversation. I'm your host, Shayla Stonechild, and I'm super excited to be here with Megan. Megan is a Métis educator who grew up in Edmonton, which is on Treaty 6 territory in the Métis homeland. Growing up, she experienced the harmful and pervasive misconceptions about Indigenous peoples in the colonial lands known as Canada. This fueled her desire to become a teacher and motivated her desire to advocate four fundamental changes in education. She is currently a high school English teacher committed to disrupting dominant narratives and celebrating and affirming her students' identities in her classroom. Her commitment to anti-oppression work has allowed her to lead professional development sessions for other educators. In recent years, she's moved beyond her classroom and started to use social media as a tool to share information and educate people on Indigenous issues. In her spare time, she enjoys coaching basketball and creating artwork. So welcome to the podcast, Megan Tipler. Thanks for having me. Uh, I'm curious to know, first question, where did you grow up? So I grew up in Edmonton. I um, My family roots go back to like the Cree Métis community of Lac St. Anne. Mm-hmm. And my grandma grew up in Marlborough, which is, uh, it used to be a Métis settlement, but it's not anymore. Um, but yeah, my my mom kind of was all over the place in her childhood. Um, mm. And then mostly in Edmonton. And so then that's where she kind of settled and met my dad. And that's where my sisters and I grew up. So we are Edmonton kids. <laughs> and, and you're back in Edmonton, right? Yeah. And so what was it like growing up um, as a Métis person? Because for me, I actually like didn't really claim my Métis roots because I felt, quote unquote, like less Native. So I'm curious to know, like, how was that experience for you growing up Métis? Uh, I think that like, well, growing up, I went to like schools that were like predominantly white, mm-hmm. uh, maybe have like, you know, one or two other kids um, that were Indigenous. And um, I think I got stereotyped into that role. Like I remember like uh, the people coming in to talk about like the elementary education talks about like indigenous peoples of the past a lot. So you'd get mm-hmm. like, you know, once a year they'd come in and like, they'd be like, oh, let's do like a smudge or like, let's uh, feel a beaver pelt or something. And it's like, you want to come up to the front since you're the native getting class? And I was like, mm. um, so I think that like I was, I, I've said this before that I like it was like embarrassing at times because you get like spotlighted as like that kid right and then mm-hmm. you tend to like withdraw a little bit from it so I think probably wasn't until I was like in university that I like 
really embrace my identity. Like we mm. grew up, we were native, but it wasn't something that like, um, that we were, I, or I should say speak for myself, not for my sisters, but like something that I like took pride in probably until mm-hmm. I was in university. And I was like kind of challenging my own notions of what it meant to be indigenous. Mm-hmm. I think I can relate to that because like I grew up in a predominantly white uh, city community as well, Medicine Hat. And so I didn't realize till I was older, like how I internalized a lot of my shame and like shyness because I felt different. Yeah. And I also felt like I didn't want to speak too much because I could become that like, quote unquote, token native. Um, yeah. Is that Alberta is a special kind I of. <laughs> I know. Yeah. I live in BC now, but um, yeah, every time I go back to Alberta, I I always forget like how more progressive I guess Vancouver is is in their thinking. And then I go back to Alberta and I'm like, oh yeah, this exists like outside of BC still. And so uh, my next question, I know you do a lot of work within the school system. How did that come to be? Uh, You went to university um, to study what first? Uh, so I just took secondary education. So my degree is in uh, physical education and English. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then just going into teaching like English language arts, I there's just a very obvious need for representation. Um, there's a lack of authors that are centered that aren't, you know, white male stale. Mm-hmm. And um, so that just became a focus for me was trying to find uh, literature that affirmed the identity of my students and mm-hmm. of my and brought in those different perspectives that they weren't being exposed to. Um, I know you've talked a lot about representation too, and yeah, the work that you um, and like I don't think representation is you know the the solution to all our problems, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. I also think like you and I talking about our experience as um, Indigenous students and like having. Mm-hmm a lack of representation or feeling like the tokenized student and bringing in uh, more representative tax and a, and a mm-hmm. multiplicity tax really like pushes kids to, to consider an experience outside their own. That's awesome. Uh, yeah, no, I think like representation is just like the little sliver and it goes a lot deeper. Like representation is only good for so much so much until we need like more action and more like inclusivity I guess you could say uh so I know you said growing up you felt um it wasn't until like uh university when you started to reclaim more of your Métis roots in university did you also kind of face the same thing because I feel like for me I've had a lot of resistance going into a colonial institution because for once, I feel like at the core of a lot of education is like white supremacy and it is a lot of colonial professors. And so I've always just been, you know, kind of scared and, t- and intimidated to get into post-secondary education. And so I'm curious to know more about your experience as being a Métis person in um, university and also like any advice for people that are maybe, you know, contemplating post-secondary because of this. I, I definitely think like, yeah, there was frustrations in university where especially like you're trying to debate your humanity to someone like, right, someone's mm. talking about it as a concept instead of like your lived experience. Um, I do think like now for education, like all teachers have to do, I think it's EDU 211, which is like um, Indigenous Perspectives in Education. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and one of the professors at the U of A, um, Dr. Farah Sharif, she actually like, I've been a guest speaker in her class a couple of times in that class, which is really nice to just like connect with future educators who mm. are invested in prioritizing indigenous voices as they, mm-hmm. become, you know, leaders in their classrooms. Um, but for like indigenous students and in university in general, like I think community is very important mm-hmm. and find, finding people with like shared values because operating within yeah within a colonial institution can be very frustrating mm-hmm. even me trying to go back into school like I'm trying to do my master's and for a long time I was like I don't know if I want to go back to school like you know is it is it worth it for me to really go back into an institution um and and put myself in that situation again um and the yeah I don't know I struggle with that a lot and even like as a teacher in the education system I feel like a walking paradox sometimes in that like I am advocating for you know huge changes but at the same time I'm in the machine that exists like I'm part of the problem so how do you reconcile that Yeah, I think that's what a lot of people don't understand, too, is like uh, what I've experienced within working, you know, even in the wellness industry, when I work with other brands, I like want all these big changes. But then I realize like these uh, institutions and businesses have been operating from this place for a very long time. So the changes that I want to see are not going to happen like overnight. So why did you get into education? Like what when you're feeling burnt out and, you know, overwhelmed and lethargic, what is your why that gets you to, you know, go back and keep doing the work that you're doing? I joke about that to my husband all the time, that every time I'm feeling like I just want to give up or like I'm so frustrated by something, a student will, like a former student will message me or text me and be like, hey, I saw this on your Instagram or like, I just wanted to tell you, like, I really appreciate you or Mm. Like one of my uh, first classes that I had when I moved back to Edmonton, I had a student message me and she sent me this huge long message about how um, she was so excited because she's in first year of university in gender studies and she was getting mm. to study all these different authors. And like, I was one of the only teachers in her K to 12 education that prioritized different voices. And I hate using that term different, but you know, outside of what we've internalized as the norm mm-hmm. and so her message just came at a time when I was just like so frustrated by so many things. And I was like, oh man, that was like, I needed that. So for sure youth, I think are the motivating factor at all times. Mm-hmm. They are the future. And what has your, been re- your response been from like, so first off, what are the age groups that you teach right now? Uh, so right now I teach ninth and 10th grade. Ninth and tenth grade, and what is their response when you do bring in, you know, like Indigenous authors and different voices? How has that response been? I honestly don't think they think twice about it. Mm, mm-hmm. like, like, and that's that's the thing is like we there's so much, the resistance to me comes from teachers. It doesn't come from students, and so like when I have these conversations like um, with kids, like they they don't second guess it for the most part if they do they're asking in a very earnest way so like mm-hmm. I, sometimes when I get frustrated on like Instagram and stuff I'm like hey how would I approach this with a student because mm-hmm. they're coming from a place of like wanting to know and it's um or it's like adults sometimes I'm like they've just they're so set in their ways that adults are the issue 
but yeah, like we, like I said, we did a bunch of texts that are like our core texts this year that were like indigenous, um, mm. like and and characters and stuff. And they didn't think anything of it. Right now, their current debate is whether uh, Jared could take Frenchie from the Marrow Thieves. Like they're trying to decide <laughs> to be the ultimate. Like, <laughs> but you know, not. Uh, they're never like, oh, we have to do another indigenous author. Like, right. You know. And so uh, a lot, there is a lot of talk about like, you know, indigenizing the curriculum or, you know, decolonizing it. And I know social media moves very fast, but when it's actually working within the institution, like how is that reflected at all? Or like what has been, how do you decolonize a curriculum? Like, is that even possible? I don't, I, I struggle with that question all the time. Like, I don't know if it's really truly possible to decolonize education because education is a colonial institution mm-hmm. like the way you know the way the school system operates right now is built on the bones of like the residential school system mm-hmm. and they're still dealing with like the impacts of that and how our indigenous students move and operate or our black students or our students of color so like I don't know if it's truly possible to decolonize the educational system but I do think you can decolonize like um elements of the system mm, um, mm-hmm. and, and, and that indigenization part is kind of like what I focus on is just really bringing in like indigenous perspectives and indigenous knowledge and like having those at the forefront of what I'm doing in my class so that mm-hmm. it becomes normal to my students and I know you said like you're met with usually a lot of resistance from the teachers and so if there's any teachers that are listening you know what would your advice be to support this reality of indigenizing you know parts of the curriculum uh, seek out the knowledge from indigenous educators. Um, mm-hmm. I think sometimes, and I, and I'm going to be, I'm just going to add like an asterisk to that. I've been really lucky because I have worked with people for the most part who have been like, yeah, you have this idea, like go for it in your classroom. Or they're like, how do I do that in my classroom? Um, but the educate, like the teaching profession as a whole, like there's mm-hmm. still a lot of issues. Um, and I, I don't know why it's social media that I tend to see that on the most, like, Mm. there's like Alberta teachers Facebook group and stuff and sometimes like the resistance that I see to change is very frustrating so I think number one like you know acknowledge your positionality Mm. um, Mm -hmm. and number two you know open your mind and open your heart to indigenous perspectives being Mm -hmm. at the forefront and look for indigenous educators who are already doing the work because I find a lot of times people are like you know it's new to me so therefore Mm -hmm. it's new to everyone and it's like no these things have been discussed and dissected and you know debated Mm -hmm. for decades this isn't this isn't a new idea has um has the curriculum changed since like when you went to school because I know when I went to school like I probably read like three pages of indigenous people and studies and like I had no no history on residential school and I actually was it true that someone tried to get rid of teaching residential schools uh the history within the Alberta curriculum or am I just making this up no so (laughs) the uh program of studies um is it would have been this like the program of studies that I teach is the same program of studies that we probably would have had when we were students. It hasn't changed in like okay. many years. Um, with ELA, there's a lot of flexibility. So like I'm lucky there that mm. when like 
English class, like I can swap out texts and still meet the program of studies. But right now, this UCP government is um, trying to create a new curriculum, and some of the advisors that they have are very anti-Indigenous or debated the appropriateness of teaching residential schools or um you know that like it's like oh it's we have to protect the children and it's like yeah you were kidnapping indigenous children and forcing them into these schools at the same age that you're saying it's too sensitive to talk to kids about and kids have the ability to have these conversations at very young age like you're not gonna talk you know present it to them in the age appropriate way but they can empathize and they can relate and understand like i said better than adults sometimes Mm -hmm. So yeah, the, I'm very worried about what like uh, Jason Kenny and Co are concocting at the moment because based on what his priorities have shown, I don't have high hopes. But mm-hmm. yeah, I mean that's interesting that you bring up like the fact that you are questioning whether or not fi- like younger kids can learn about residential schools, but then here you know we like kids got taken away at five years old so it's like they're right there is just like the I guess racism that exists within Canada and that brings me to my next question is you know I my mom's Métis and my dad is Cree and when I posted online recently that you know I was Métis which I thought you know a lot of people knew but then all of a sudden some didn't they and then I got a lot of lateral violence online and it was kind of surprising to me I didn't uh realize that there was a lot of um I guess lateral violence towards Métis people and so I'm curious to know have you experienced this as well being a Métis person and if you have like I don't know I guess what would your advice be because I also realize there's a younger generation of Métis people that may experience this as well I think that, um, how would I phrase that? I think it goes both ways. Like we, like Métis have a responsibility to not speak beyond their realm of lived experience. Because sometimes I find that, um, especially because Métis, like there are a lot of people who are finding out their Métis later in life, using their newfound, like, you know, indigeneity to, to take opportunities away from, um, people who can maybe serve better in the roles that they're taking on um, still in like the infancy stages of understanding their own identity um, so I think that makes it difficult I also mm-hmm. think there are I've seen a lot of white presenting Métis who um, kind of excuse the racism that is experienced by um like our darker skin kin, right? Mm-hmm. Like, oh, well, I've never experienced that. So it doesn't happen. So I think right. specifically for lighter skin Métis, because not all Métis are light skin. That's, that's mm-hmm. a misconception. Yeah. Um, but the, for lighter skin Métis, like we have a responsibility to, to like dismantle, you know, colorism and anti-black mm-hmm. within our um, communities as well. Um so I haven't really experienced lateral violence because I do try to be very cognizant of not speaking beyond my my depth, I guess. And if I do, it's usually coming from like an academic or educational standpoint. It's not coming from like, oh, I'm speaking over or speaking for someone. I I do I do understand the lateral violence and I do understand like I I would not dismiss somebody's um indigenous identity because of how light or dark they are. 
but I think specifically as white passing Métis, um, there is like a responsibility to acknowledge that proximity to whiteness has awarded us um, privileges that other indigenous peoples may not have. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's a good way. Um, a good thing to amplify too is like, I realized, you know, I'm not privileged in the sense of like white privilege but I'm privileged in the sense of you know I'm able-bodied um Mm -hmm. I'm lighter skin native as well you know all these other um intersections that do give us privilege um and I guess that yeah that goes to my I think I already asked you but like for the younger generation that may be experienced lateral lateral violence what do you think um you know they should do or would you have any advice for the younger generation I think seeking connection to your community is the best thing you can do um because you should be account like who are you accountable to essentially is the question right like if you're claiming indigeneity to be for your own selfish desires then it's not coming from a good place um so i think find connecting yourself rooting yourself being humble um is what I would, I would probably do. Like, um, there are a lot of people too. Like I've never, I've never really received pushback for seeking connection or community. Um, I think sometimes we're so rooted in our own shame that we just like perceive the worst scenario to happen. But, you know, even teaching, um, even teaching in Gift Lake, like it's a, it's a Métis settlement in Alberta. Um, almost all of the teachers there are Métis. Um, most of them grew up in Lake predominantly speak Cree there um, among, the, among the teaching staff anyways. Um, and so, you know, I'm coming in as like a lighter, lighter skin Métis who um, doesn't speak the language. And I was welcomed with open arms and I had you know, like reservations about, Oh, you know, they're going to think I'm this. And I grew up in the city and blah, blah, blah. And that was never the experience I had. Yeah, I think it comes back to, yeah, community and kinship. And I guess during this time, it could feel pretty isolating, too, because we're like, we're in the pandemic. And I know uh, challenges you face with like resistance from teachers. I'm curious to know, like, how has this pandemic actually affected your work this last year as a teacher? Um, You know what, the pandemic is, the frustration with the pandemic is that I think that some, in some ways it's been used as an excuse in the education field. Like, you know, we can't advance with anti-oppression or anti-racism because you know, our focus is on the pandemic. And I, and I do understand that. I live that every single day with, you know, teaching students online at the same time I'm teaching students in class. And it's um, really difficult and it, it can be frustrating and you feel like you're expending all this emotional energy and, all that. And I totally understand that and and sympathize with that. But at the same time, like, uh, it's not an excuse. Like we still better for our students every day. Um, So yeah, I think the dismissiveness, I think has been the the greatest frustration with the pandemic is that um, it's further pushed the work back. So even though we saw in June, like, you know, this huge uprising because of everything that's happening in the u.s with george floyd and black lives matter and um people really kind of becoming more conscious in that moment of racial injustice stuff like that there wasn't a lot of carryover (laughs) like as soon as september hit and we were back in school it was like uh survival instincts with technology and all 
and 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 that kind of like went to the back burner again and I think that's really frustrating Um, yeah I feel that like online I like I was um not excited but I was like um when everything was happening on social media I was finally like finally people are like waking up and they're waking up to the realities that we face every single day being a BIPOC person being an indigenous person and then it died down and then just now with like um the attack just that just went in Atlanta where it killed um eight people and for it to spike up again I'm like hey is it now becoming like a trend for people to speak up about racism when people are getting killed like how many people still have to uh die for people to continue to wake up and so some of it can feel performative online and so engaging in a social media setting what do you um I guess, what is your intention with social media and how do you engage with your audience on social media? I struggle with this all the time because I actually hate social media. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not, I'm like a a fairly private person. Um, My husband, even more so, like he doesn't really, uh, he doesn't have social media. Mm -hmm. I don't like posting like pictures and videos of myself and, and things like that. So I, and I took a big step back from social media, probably in November, um, just because of a lot of what you were saying, like a lot of what was being posted was very like performative and reactive instead of um, people interacting in a way that was meaningful and, and, and to give up power. It was just mm-hmm. like, Oh, I'm, repost this person to show that I follow an indigenous person and I'm like you know I don't want to be anyone's token native like yeah I don't yeah so I I struggle with that on social media Mm -hmm. I think that a lot of what I post generally comes from what I'm experiencing and the conversations I'm having in my classroom sometimes a kid will ask a question I'm like oh that's like a good like you know that's a good post. Or like, we'll just have a conversation with something. Even kids sometimes will be like, you should post about that. <laughs> or like, they're like, oh, your followers went down or your followers went up. <laughs> you guys are creepy, like, stop. Um, but yeah, so I think the educational piece for me is still important, but also I'm trying, like, you know, anti-racism shouldn't be in easy digestible chunks. Mm. And so... I feel sometimes that like social media is like people's primary news source and they use that yeah. as like, oh, I like this post or I shared this post in my stories and like, that's enough. And it's like, well, that's, that's the bare minimum. Like, what are you doing beyond that? Yeah. Like what is your actions like daily? Like what are you having these conversations outside of social media or is it just like online for me? Every, I, I go through a lot of burnout with social media because I feel like there is a lot of pressure when you are an Indigenous educator um, because a lot of people, I don't know, they almost like rely on you to keep giving out these sources and keep educating them. And so have you also experienced this like in your DMs and have you created boundaries with that? Yeah, and I, I don't know if you've had this experience too where like, you know, there's something happening in the indigenous community and you'll get like five or six messages from people being like, are you going to post about this? And I'm like, I don't have the mental capacity right now. Like I'm not posting anything. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean I don't support what's going on or that I haven't seen it, but I don't need to see it six times in my DMs from people. Like, so that, that's kind of sometimes my boundary is like, um, like, thanks for sending that to me, but 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm just yeah curious to know other people's boundaries because it's hard um, when you have not only indigenous but non-indigenous people always coming into your DMs. I'm like, I can barely respond to my emails, let alone like all these other messages. Um, so then moving forward, you know, what do you hope to see? You know, there's some um, concept of indigenous futurism, and what does that what does that mean to you? Um, I really like the way that Sierra put it. So first mm-hmm. of all, her her acknowledgement of like Afrofuturisms as you know the root source of that but um she was talking about Black Panther you know an imagination of what Black community is capable of without um the interference of colonization and so I think about that for Indigenous communities too like you know we've been so rooted in um survival or like resiliency that how do we think about um, the future without any the future without any bars or any like um, like what's the word I'm trying to think of like barriers yeah without any barriers or without any like you know internalized um, like stopping points like mm-hmm. you know limitation is our minds and and I think that that can be a real struggle when from a young age, you're, you're receiving these messages of inferiority and you, you don't think that, you know, that there are no limitations because you've had society placed so many on you. So like indigenous futurisms, I just think of um, looking forward and um, that seven generations mindset and a good ancestor and investing into youth and um, thinking of the future and how how we can exist um, without any societal inhibitions, you know, like what does that look like? I don't know what that looks like. I I was talking to uh, the Braided Journeys teacher at our school and she works with like our First Nations and and, uh, Métis and uh, Inuit students at our school. And she was like, yeah, like, I don't know what, like what, if we woke up tomorrow and like all of this was dismantled, like, I don't know what I would do. And I was like, yeah, like, I know no. I that's funny you say the limitation thing because that's literally what I posted about just on my uh, Instagram before this was because um, <laughs> I would like tell people my visions and then they would be like well you can't do that you can't do that that's not possible and then I was like according to who according to your own limitations like I'm gonna you know keep this vision in mind but then I guess uh, we do have limitations like growing up if you've never seen you know uh, quote unquote success, or if you've never seen wealth, then you may not even know that reality exists outside your own uh, reality. Because I also realize I have a privilege. I had a privilege in a sense of like growing up as an urban native and not growing up on the res. Um, so yeah, I like how you say, uh, "What would life? What what would it look like without uh, limitations and without having to dismantle everything?" And I think. Well- well you're like I I kind of glanced through your post but like my first thought with that too was even like the matriarch thing like the power of like indigenous women like it's so funny you're talking about like limitations because like that's a huge thing too is like people impose limitations on indigenous women because we're seen as you know too loud or too too much Mm -hmm. 
Well, even like, I think like, even when you start taking up space for me, I've realized, you know, I'm like, should I be like, I code switch a lot and just like little things that you wouldn't think that you have to do. It's almost like, how do you remain in authenticity while also realizing like, sometimes it does feel like you are doing things for like the white gaze almost. I don't know if that's a proper way of saying it, but yeah, like for even in the education system, I guess, do you are you confronted with like having to code switch or, you know, having to dim your own authenticity as an indigenous woman? <laughs> For sure. I I always say that there's a game and I'm really bad at playing it because I have a really hard time. Like there, there's for sure like a political game. And if you look at almost any school board in Alberta, um, the superintendent, I think every superintendent in Alberta except one is white. Um, the upper leadership teams of most most education systems are white and mostly men. Um, and so trying to navigate that, and a lot of principals are men. Uh, and so, yeah, trying to navigate that as, you know, an outspoken uh, woman and an indigenous woman is sometimes not well received. And I just like, well, if they don't like me too bad, because, I don't have time to worry about the people that aren't invested. Like if my, if the tone of my message is the issue, then you weren't really invested in the message to begin with. Exactly. And so like, what are the tools that you have for me? It's like when I uh, need to get back to myself, like I have tools as in like meditation and yoga and I go to the beach and I offer tobacco. So do you have tools that like keeps you rooted in your own power? I'm really awful at uh, being self-aware of my own. (laughs) levels it's like crash and burn and then I'm like oh, I sh- should probably take better care of myself mm-hmm. I think the tools for me whether I'm conscious of them or not is um my like the community around me so mm-hmm. I'm very fortunate that I have a very supportive partner uh, and sometimes he's just he's more in tune to it than I am he'll be like do you need me to do anything for you I'm I'll make dinner tonight like I or he'll just he'll just text like do you need anything do you do you want anything like uh, my mom is the first person to be like are you sure you have the, the energy for that you need to take care of yourself you need to take better care of yourself you can't take on everything and also having friends who have um, those shared values as well that are like you know on you and like trying to make sure you're okay um, exercise is huge I really like. And I know that about myself, that if I exercise, I just feel a lot better mentally and emotionally. But that's the first thing to fall off when I'm like feeling overwhelmed. So mm-hmm. yeah, and like not being too hard on yourself when that does happen. Um, you you mentioned your mother. So I'm curious to know, like, who are the matriarchs that you're currently inspired by? And what does the word matriarch mean to you? Uh, I think matriarch means a lot of things. I actually wrote a list because like that was the I was like, I'm like, I'm going to think about like, what does matriarch mean to me? So some of the things that I thought of right away were grounding. Um, and that's, that's very much true in my family that my mom is the grounding force, you know, the roots of the tree that we're all part of. Um, I think power. Um, and I think that that's a tough one for a lot of people is that uh, women with power um I was talking about this with someone the other day actually and we were talking about when you grow up with a strong mother uh you don't you don't 
think twice about it. I have three sisters, you know, we all are very outspoken, self-assured women. And I credit that in a large part to my mom, but also to my dad, because he never um, tried to dim my mom's light. Like, he was never intimidated by her self-assuredness. And so, yeah, that power, I think, perspective. Um, women bring a necessary perspective. And I think that's why women in leadership and matriarchs in leadership is so important because there is a thoughtfulness and an intentionality there that is necessary in decision-making. Accountability, I think, matriarch accountable to the the people around them um i think there's we're in a, like society right now there's a lot of people who want power but not the accountability of that power and so i think matriarchs embody that in in how they move through the world and the decisions they're making are not just rooted in self seriously <laughs> seriously no. um and then matriarchs that you're inspired by right now um Always my mom. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think, you know what? There's a lot. There's so many on social media. I know. Matriarchs in the making. Cause I think that like mm-hmm. a lot of us are in the stages where uh, we're making moves in our communities and, and it's, it's really interesting. And like, it gives me a lot of hope to see like these strong women um, throughout Turtle Island who are making moves and inspiring communities and inspiring youth and restoring working to restore that balance. So I don't know, there's so many, there's too many that I can even name. I know there's <laughs> a lot, there's a lot. Uh, yeah. I feel like there's a lot to be hopeful for and to look forward to in the future. Um, would you have any advice for the younger generation that, you know, maybe wants to do what you're currently doing right now? I would say go for it. Um, we need more indigenous teachers. We need more indigenous educators who are working to dismantle uh, the status quo in education. Um, I would also say, be forewarned that not everyone will like you. That's okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Not everyone will agree with what you are pushing for and advocating for. And that's all right. They don't have to. As long as you know what you are fighting for and who you're fighting for, that's the most valuable thing you can focus on. Well, thank you so much, Megan, for, you know, sharing your space and sharing your knowledge uh, with me today. Uh, Where can people support your work and follow you and to learn more, a little bit more about you? Um, On Instagram, I'm at Tipler Teaches. That's pretty much where I predominantly am. I don't really spend a lot of time on other social media sources. Um, I do have a Teachers Pay Teachers store, but it's pretty bare. Um, I'm working to try and get more resources out to support other teachers, but yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you, Megan. Uh, And yes, make sure you follow her work, support her, and I'll tag all the handles below. Hi, hi. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and I'd love your feedback. Follow me on Instagram at shayla0h at matriarch.movement. And don't forget to subscribe on the pod platform of your choice and review and rate where possible. I'll be back in a week. Thank you, hi, hi, so much for tuning in.